Uh, this morning, we are going to be talking about uh, how to handle people who maybe are just a little bit too delicate to handle offense. And I just want to say right off the bat that you people are really tough. And you know why I think you're tough? Because you have endured the series so far. Uh, we've been talking about the critic and the manipulator and the hypocrite and the lazy bum, and we've been doing it from a standpoint of, hey, this could really apply to me because there's a little critic and a little manipulator and a little hip and a, a, a little lazy bum and a, and a, a little a little hypocrite. They're all kind of in me, and I've got to deal with this. And so I appreciate your humility and toughness because I've given you plenty of opportunity over the last few weeks to take offense, and and you haven't, and that's a good thing for you. Um, it's nice to know that we've got people that will come and open up the Bible, come to God, come to Jesus, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to their heart and take them places that may be kind of difficult. We've been thinking along the lines of, I've got to be careful, grade my own paper, and not come at any of these subjects as if I am somehow above reproach or, or, or rebuke. I'm one of the hard people that Jesus has to handle. And so kudos to you for being here in this series. Like Jesus said, blessed is the one who does not take offense, who's not offended by me. So good for you. You're tough, and I mean that. Now, having said all of that, I want to say as gently, as delicately as I know how to say it, there's a little snowflake in you and in me. And if you just took offense at me saying that, you, you've proven my point. Uh, we all have different sensitivities. We all have a tendency to, to, to get a little offended from time to time. We may have different melting points, but we do have melting points. doesn't matter who you are. There's a little bit of fragility in you, like there's some fragility in me. I'm just kind of curious. How many of you all ever watched the movie, or not the movie, the TV series Seal Team? Is that, am I the only one? Okay, several of you. That's about the only series that I really stick with pretty consistently and it's about the bravo team these navy seals and one of the characters on there that's my favorite is sonny quinn and he's this special warfare operator and he's got this macho exterior and he does macho things and and he's probably the toughest person on the team which is entirely appropriate since he's a texan and uh, and so i kind of follow along with him but in spite of all of his machismo he's got some fragile points he's afraid of sharks which is very inconvenient for somebody who's in the water a lot. And he also is afraid of closed spaces. He's claustrophobic, which I totally understand and identify with. In fact, the most recent series, the most recent episode on TV has Sonny essentially trapped in a torpedo tube. He can't get out. Oh, and it's slowly filling up with water. And so you see this guy, he's crying and, and he's splashing around and he's kicking and then he calms down and and I'm watching all this, and I suffer from claustrophobia. I totally get it. And I don't know that I'm going to make it through the end of this episode. And I'm, really, I'm not kidding. You can ask my family. I, I, this is legitimate. I, it's my only weakness, uh, it, claustrophobia. Uh, in, in fact, when I was on vacation uh, recently up skiing, my wife went to get me some nasal strips because when I get to a certain size, which I'm getting below, I have a tendency to snore. That, I guess that's my second weakness. Uh, but it doesn't ever bother me. 
But anyway, so Gina goes to the store to get me these nasal strips, but she doesn't get the kind that open up the nose. It's this stuff you stick under the nose so that you can breathe in, but you can't breathe out through your nose. You've got to do it through the mouth so you don't snore. And I'd never worn these things before, and I'm a little bit nervous. And so I stick these things on there, and I kid you not, five minutes after I'd been asleep, I woke up breathless as if somebody had stuck a pillow over my face like I'd been suffocated. And I couldn't go back to sleep for five hours because I'd lay down and I would feel like I'm in a coffin. There is something connected to running out of air and claustrophobia that just creeped me out. And so I'm watching this and I'm thinking, this is terrible. And sure enough, I watch Sonny on TV die. He drowns in that torpedo tube. But they, rest, they resuscitate him because he's one of the best people. So he, they resuscitate him just in time. But here's the point in bringing this up. Just because you're not afraid of heights or flying or snakes or spiders or death or bleeding or pain or germs or being alone doesn't mean that you're unbreakable. Everybody's got their fragility. Everybody's got their weak spot. Everybody has a melting point of sorts. It's just that your melting point is different than my melting point. I'm bringing this up because I want us to know, hey, let's not think that we're above being a little fragile. And different people have different soft spots or vulnerable points when it comes to being sensitive. So today, as we're talking about dealing with or handling the snowflake, let's, let's try to apply this to us and to ourselves and not necessarily to the other people around us. Now, for those of us who aren't so sure about the term snowflake, let me just define this for you. I'm going to go to the ultimate source of all modern knowledge and information, UrbanDictionary.com. Uh, this is Tampa Ray. He says, snowflake, someone who's easily hurt or offended by the statements or actions of others. Snowflakes can be liberal or conservative, and I could give you examples of that, but we're going to press forward. So this morning, as we think about how to handle the snowflake, we're thinking about how to handle the snowflake in me, and uh, we're going to turn our attention to one person in particular, a lady, who is anything but a snowflake. And we're actually going to be looking at this woman in the context of a conversation with Jesus, an encounter with Jesus and his disciples, who happened to look like a bunch of guys who were suffering from Jewish male privilege. And so actually, before we read the text together, I, I want to give you a trigger warning in the spirit of the snowflake, okay? Let me just read this warning. The text of Matthew 15, 21 through 28 has been tagged for the following concerns. Race, racism, sexism, xenophobia, xenophobic slur, socioeconomic class distinction, tribalism, Islamophobia implicit in the promotion of Semitism, misogyny, and the inappropriate use of puppies in the subjugation of ancient pagan culture. Okay, now that you've been warned, nobody here can attempt to sue me and send me to a three-day sensitivity training weekend. All right, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. 
He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. May God bless her. His word, you may be seated. This morning, my, my agenda is real simple. I just want to communicate the truth triangle of strength for the snowflake because, you know, the triangle is the strongest geometric figure. There's three points. And what we need as snowflakes is strength. And so the first point that every snowflake needs to understand is Jesus wants to help. He wants to help you, but you must stay engaged in the midst of the potential offense. As offensive as Jesus can be, and he acknowledges he can be offensive. That's why he says, blessed are you if you don't take offense at me. As offensive as the truth, truth can be, we've got to recognize that Jesus actually wants to help us no matter where we are, no matter who we are. Now, how do we see this from this text in particular? Well, I want us to be real careful to understand that Jesus never did anything merely by his own decision, never did anything haphazard or random. His actions and his movements were guided from above. Jesus tells us this much over in John chapter 8 and verse 29. He explains that everything he ever did was to please the Father who was guiding him. And so I don't think it's a random event that Jesus up and leaves the neighborhood of Capernaum so as to go to the seaside towns of Tyre and Sidon. In order to leave Capernaum where he was, in order to go to this this coastal region, that would require a journey, presumably on foot, of about 40 miles one way. Why does he go there? Well, it's not random. And when he goes there, the only thing that's recorded for us is this encounter with this Syrophoenician woman, which, by the way... The woman that Jesus encounters here beyond the boundaries of the border of Israel, he has gone outside the territory of his people to encounter this woman. It's very similar to the encounter that Jesus has at Jacob's well with the woman at the well, that Samaritan woman. You remember the story? He goes to this well and he meets with this woman and she is clearly beyond the boundaries of the the, the race and the religion of Jesus' people. In a very real sense, Matthew chapter 15 mirrors that encounter because again Jesus is intentionally beyond the boundaries of his own people if you will to visit with this woman who who is of a different race and of a different religious persuasion not only that what's really interesting is Matthew talks about this woman as being a Canaanite woman now what's so interesting about this is the word Canaanite wasn't in use anymore you wouldn't find Canaan on any map at the time that Matthew writes this gospel. That would be very much like, like you saying, I'm going to go down to Waterloo to listen to some live music. Austin used to be known as Waterloo before we call it Waterloo, but nobody calls it Waterloo anymore. Why in the world is Matthew calling this woman a Canaanite woman? That doesn't make sense. Well, the reason Matthew's doing this is to clearly communicate this woman is not just an other, but she is an other of a specifically enemy people on top of that some scholars have pointed out that the only kind of woman that would approach a man she didn't know in public and talk to this man she didn't know in public would be a prostitute now that may or may not be the case but it certainly seems to be a pattern fit if we're drawing some connections between matthew chapter 15 and jesus encounter with the woman at the well in john chapter 4 And so what we have being presented here is Jesus intentionally encountering a woman outside the boundaries of his own nation who is an other, 
who is a member of an enemy people, and who is disreputable on top of all of that. Now, why does Jesus go to her? Why does he travel, presumably on foot, a marathon and a half, to meet with this woman? Well, the answer ought to be kind of obvious, to bless her. And you say, well, wait a second, it doesn't seem like he's interested in blessing her at all. Well, it doesn't seem that way either if you go over to Genesis chapter 32 and Jacob wrestles with God. Even though Jacob wrestles with God to the point of utter exhaustion and to the point of limping for the rest of his life, that doesn't mean that God wasn't intent on blessing Jacob. It's Jacob's the father of a nation. He's the father of the chosen people of God. Of course God wants to bless Jacob. It's just that oftentimes before the blessing comes, there's wrestling. In fact, frequently you're going to find this pattern when it comes to God blessing people or Jesus performing miracles. You're going to see a pattern pretty consistent with there being a moment of wrestling, a moment of exchange, a moment of difficulty before the blessing comes. And so if you ever feel like God is wrestling with you or you're struggling with Jesus in conversation and it's getting a little difficult, maybe intense, maybe, maybe even brutal to you, and you feel that engagement, don't let go. You hang in there until you receive what it is that Jesus wants you to receive, and that's a blessing. I mentioned in the last service, just kind of offhandedly, that if you ever read the Bible, if you come to Sunday school, if you're, if you're in prayer and you're wrestling with God, rarely are you not going to find the potential for offense. Truth offends lies. Light offends darkness. When you come into an encounter with God, there's going to be a little wrestling. There's going to be some struggle. Because every day is an opportunity for repentance, to rethink your life, to become more and more like Jesus and less and less of who you used to be. So you need to expect that if you're encountering Jesus, there's going to be a little bit of wrestling before the blessing comes. And this dynamic ought to be very understandable to you, like it's understandable to me, and that is it it, it mirrors the parent-child relationship, the teacher-student relationship, the coach-student-athlete relationship. Whenever the teacher is debating with the student, if they're a professor and they're, they're debating with them or challenging them or not giving them the grade that the student thinks that they're needing to get or when the parent chastises the child or when the athlete is chastised by the coach and the coach makes them run more laps or extra lines after practice, in that moment the authority figure seems kind of brutal, but we all know what the authority figure, the parent or the coach or the teacher is trying to do. They're trying to take that student from where they are to where it is that they need to be. And there just comes a moment in every student's life where they have to figure, in spite of the confusion, I've got to commit and cross a certain bridge and entrust my life to this person, even though I'm confused, even though they're not giving me what it is that I think that I need when I need it in the way that I need it, the way I think I do. This woman in this conversation crosses this particular bridge, and you, you, you have to love this. Look at what Look at what happens. I mean, here's the event. Jesus replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's an immediate challenge to her willingness to stay engaged in this conversation, to continue to wrestle with him. And she takes him up on it. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. Jesus challenges her, but she kneels, not in a passive submission, but in an active, engaged submission before Jesus. You just have to love the resilience of this woman. And that brings us to the second thing that every snowflake needs to keep in mind, and that is resilience is a key ingredient to success in life, so you work on it. 
In fact, whenever God blesses us, he never blesses us at the expense of our resilience. In fact, oftentimes you're going to see in the scripture, not just on this occasion, but you're going to see this pretty frequently, where resilience and faith and blessing are walking hand in hand in the same direction. And sometimes God just does us a favor by not making the road smooth for us, but making it rough for us so that we will have the opportunity to develop resilience because God has the long view and he's not just seeing this one moment where we're wanting things to be smooth. He's seeing the whole of what is in store for us and he knows what's actually better for us is that we develop resilience before he just makes life easy for us. Resilience is incredibly important to God. Now, what is resilience? Let's just define this real quickly. It's not a real familiar term. We don't use it a lot, but resilience is just the ability to bounce back from life's inevitable disappointments, setbacks, and pains. Let me put it like this. If you're in a car and your car doesn't have shock absorbers and you're riding down the country road, it's not going to be a pleasant experience for you. You're going to feel all the bumps. But if you are... If you've got the shock absorbers, it's not going to be so bad. If you're riding down the road of life without the internal shock absorbers of resilience, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. In fact, without the internal shock absorbers of resilience, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to lead a well-adjusted life. You're not going to lead an effective, successful life. Resilience is the opposite of fragility. If you're fragile, you're going to feel every bump. You're going to feel every pothole, every rock, every speed bump, you're just always going to be hurt and angry. So if you lack resilience necessary for you to make it smoothly through life, you can do one of two things. On the one hand, you can just develop more resilience. You can get more resilience by developing it through mental toughness, or becoming more grateful for what you have as opposed to focusing on what you don't have, just developing perspective on life, giving people the benefit of the doubt, you know, having a loving attitude toward other people. There's all kinds of things that you can do to develop some resilience in your life. But there's another option. If you don't have the resilience, you can just complain that the road's too rough and that's not really your fault. You can just complain that life hasn't given you a, a path that's smooth enough for you. You've got those two options available to you. And if you take that second option, you'll just say, well, the reason I'm experiencing so much difficulty in my life, the reason I'm so angry and frustrated and hurt all the time is it has nothing to do with the deficiency in me. That couldn't possibly be the case. The reason I'm so angry and hurt and bitter and frustrated is because this road is just really just, it's too bumpy. And that's not my fault. Somebody else put that road there. Now, I want to be real careful here because I don't know that it's exactly an either-or option. There are bad roads in life. There are rough people that we have to deal with. There is injustice. That's true. There are difficulties. Got it. There's stuff that needs fixing. There are broken systems. Agreed. But the problem is if you opt against resilience entirely, you're going to be, there's two problems with that. Number one, you can't fix all those problems all the time, all that quickly, all at once. There are problems now that you're going to be dealing with later on in life. I doubt very seriously that the roads before me are going to be smooth before I die. In fact, I have heard that the older I get, the more difficult life becomes. That's what I've heard. There's a second thing that you need to keep in mind, and that is whining about the road is not at all the same as fixing it. Whining about the road is not the same as repairing the road. Whining's not repairing. Whining's just whining. 
And if people are actually trying to address the problem and you're just whining about it, it's making things worse. And the other problem is when we whine and we think we've done something but we haven't actually done anything, the matters just kind of get worse right in front of our faces. Whining isn't fixing. So Jesus is all about developing resilience in you and in me, which is why Jesus blesses resilience and oftentimes insists on resilience before we ever are blessed by him. Unfortunately, here's the thing that's happening in contemporary culture, and you can see this on both sides. I'm not wanting to get political, but I could talk about the left and I could talk about the right. I can talk about both sides, but here's what I'm seeing happening in our culture. People more and more are just opting for whining. And you see it most clearly in the contemporary inability to have a free exchange of ideas and free speech. When I was growing up, my parents taught me a really simple statement. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, James chapter 3 might have something to say about this, but the reality is that's kind of true. And, and I kind of grabbed hold of that, and, and I thought, you know, if I get hit in the face... It's going to hurt no matter what I think about it. But if somebody gives me words that I don't like, it, it's kind of dependent on, on how I process those, how I think those through, what I receive and what I don't receive. I really can manage the pain of the things that are said to me because sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't know how much that saying gets repeated anymore. Much more likely that, that students are going to hear, you are entitled to go through your life without hearing any speech that is going to challenge, confuse, distress, or offend you. And so now we're kind of caught up in this, this cycle where, where now universities are protecting students who are ostensibly now adults from having to hear anything that would offend their ears. And so we've got these little free speech zones. You hear, hear, hear about this? Free speech zones where they're, they're kind of small, out-of-the-way, isolated places where people can go, where they can still practice their First Amendment rights, but not on the majority of the campus. And speech is becoming more and more and more restricted. You go, well, how bad is this? Well, it's been getting worse, and I could give you all kinds of stories, but this goes back, oh, about like six years. I think it was 2013 on Constitution Day. This was kind of the most egregious thing that really kind of woke people up. On a California campus, college campus, a student who happened to be a decorated military veteran was forbidden by the university to pass out copies of the Constitution on Constitution Day for fear that it would be offensive to people. Now, that's more of a conservative concern. On the very same day, on another college campus in California, students were not allowed to protest except in little free speech zones, which comprised about 1.5% of the whole college campus. They couldn't protest the NSA, you know, the the national surveillance of people. It it doesn't matter, liberal or conservative. You know, we just got to make sure that nobody's offended. This mentality has left the university and it's invaded the public space so that now everybody, not just university students, feel like we're entitled to not ever feeling offended. Because if we feel offended, that's your fault. How bad has this gotten? This is just a year and a half ago. ESPN pulled this, this one man. His name is Robert Lee. He's a play-by-play commentator, four-year-old, 40-year-old Asian-American, if we can put his picture up there. They pulled him from commenting on a college football game at the University of Virginia. You know why they pulled him from making the comments, the play-by-play calls? Because there, were, there was concern. There, there were protests concerning the removal of the statue of then-Confederate General Robert E. Lee, and nobody wanted to trigger anybody. So the Asian-American commentator, Robert Lee, couldn't call the game because of a statue concerning Confederate General Robert 
Ely. Now, that's not a joke. Some of you are thinking, well, you, you serious? you making that up? No, it's not a joke. Now, you would think that people who are sportscasters, you know, who live, eat, drink, football, and conflict, and sports wouldn't put up with this nonsense. But now, the postmodern narrative is, if anybody feels offended, that's not their fault. That's your fault. And so we have these things called microaggressions. And I'm really good at microaggressions, by the way. If after the service you say, oh, Ernest, that was a really good sermon, I could say, well, what about last week? You know, are you insulting me? You know, but we can come up with microaggressions all the time. But here's some real common ones. If somebody comes up to you and asks you, where are you from? Well, that's a xenophobic microaggression because they're saying you're a foreigner and you're not from around here and you don't belong. If you're a woman and a man holds the door open for you, this has been around for a long time. Well, that's a, a sexist microaggression. Even though I was taught growing up, you hold doors open for women because it communicates respect or your royalty and you need to be treated this way. But, but the, the sexist microaggression, you're holding the door open for me because you think I'm a, I'm a fragile female and I can't open my own door. You know, look at what I did. Oh, and if you wear a Make America Great Again hat, well, then that's a political microaggression because you're insinuating that it used to not be any good and I disagree with you. You're calling me an idiot. And so I guess I can shout racial slurs at you and come beat a drum in your face. And, and then you have to apologize to me and to all America for it. Really. We could go on. Whenever there's free speech, whenever there's the open exchange of ideas, there's always the potential for offense. But I want you to notice something here with Jesus and this woman. Jesus speaks freely and the woman stays engaged. The woman speaks freely, which is entirely countercultural for a woman like her in a public setting to be talking to a man like Jesus. She speaks her mind and Jesus stays engaged. And because they both stay engaged, guess what happens? Blessing. The woman's faith increases. Jesus is worshipped. The girl is healed. And everybody around experiences joy, not just the three persons that are involved, but everybody who sees the conversation and everybody experiences the healing of this young lady. Why is that? Well, because Jesus and this woman weren't little snowflakes. Because what you bring into the moment is a major determining factor for what you'll take away from it. That's the next major point for every snowflake to recognize. What you bring into your moment is the major determining factor for what you're going to take away from it. If you come into a conversation or to an event or, or to a book or to a movie determined that you're going to be offended, guess what you're going to take away? You're going to take away offense. If you come into a moment hanging on until you receive a blessing, that's exactly what you're going to take away. Let me give you a story of two people, both both in the same church. One's named Abe and one's named Art. Abe is sitting there in the service and he's listening to Amazing Grace being played by the pianist. And the pianist makes a couple of mistakes. And you know what? Abe thinks, why didn't she practice more? And then Abe notices a couple of teenagers during the prayer time talking to each other. Now, why Abe had his eyes open, we don't really know. And then when the plate is passed, he, he could swear that the deacon was watching him to make sure he was putting in enough money, and that, that made him mad. And then the pastor mispronounced a couple of words, and Abe thought to himself, I'm so much smarter than that guy, I don't know why I even listened to him. And maybe he's right. 
And then he thinks about some other offenses of the day, like when he came through the door, the greeter said, it's so good to see you. We've missed you the last couple of Sundays. And Abe says, that's a microaggression. He's saying that he's concerned about me, but he's just really shaming me for not having been here for the last couple of weeks. And when the service is over, Abe walks out, and he thinks, what a bunch of jerks. Art's in the same service, and he notices the pianist misses a couple of notes, but his heart is drawn heavenward because of the words of the song and also the heart of the person who's playing it. And when the plate is passed, he prays for his church, and he looks intently at the plate before him, and he gladly gives his tithe because he's appreciative that Jesus did more than tithe his blood. And when the sermon is preached, he feels the Holy Spirit has a word for him, and sure enough, he does. And as he leaves the service, he thinks, how could anybody possibly come to this place and say the Spirit of the Lord wasn't there? Two people, same service, totally different experiences. You know why that is? Because what breaks the snowflake will bless the more resilient person. Because what you bring to the moment is a major determining factor with regards to what you will take away from it. Now, what does this woman bring to this moment with Jesus so that she actually gets the miracle she anticipates? Well, she brings at least three things. There may be others, but these are the ones that stick out to me. First of all, the woman brings... Humility, obviously. I mean, Jesus says, look, why should I take from the children the the bread and throw it to the dogs? And she doesn't miss a beat. She runs with that. She doesn't take offense. How dare you call me that? And and actually, Jesus isn't really directing it at her, just to be clear. He's directing that comment toward the Gentiles. And so if you're offended for her, please don't be. Please be offended for you. Okay, let's not not miss who he's offending. He's talking about the Gentiles, not this one woman in particular. But she takes it. And yeah, she's bold, and she cries out after Jesus. And she, she's crying, though, for mercy. She's not crying for justice. She doesn't say, I want what I deserve. She's crying out for what she knows she doesn't deserve because she's done the homework in advance. She's done the inventory of her life, and she recognizes, I don't deserve what it is that I'm asking for. What I've, I've already been given more than I deserve. And the reality about me is I'm a sinner. And so I'm just crying out for mercy. I'm pleading for mercy. I'm pleading for what I don't deserve. That's humility. And some of you are still thinking, yeah, but that whole thing about the the little dogs, which in the Greek it's little dogs like puppies or chihuahuas or something. That's kind of offensive. Okay, look. Jesus called himself something far worse than he ever called anybody else, just to be clear. You say, what do you mean? Well, remember when Jesus is on the cross and he's drowning in his own fluid? I mean, he doesn't give big speeches because when you're drowning, you don't talk much. So he says a few words from the cross, short words. And one of the things Jesus says is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the beginning of Psalm 22. And when you quote the beginning of the psalm, it's implicit that he's talking about the whole of it. Jesus is saying, Psalm 22 is my psalm as he's hanging from the cross. You get down to verse 6 of Psalm 22, and here's what Jesus is saying of himself. I am a worm. You look it up. He says, I am a worm. I'm not a man. I'm, I'm the reproach of men. I'm despised by all people. Jesus doesn't call you a worm or me a worm. He calls himself a worm. Why? Because Jesus knew 
that if he were to grant this woman mercy, that would require him taking on justice and taking on everything that everyone deserves so that he could give us what we don't. So you take offense at Jesus as a Gentile saying, you're outside the realm of my concern, but the reality is Jesus knew exactly where he was going and he knew he was going there for you and for me. So please don't take offense at Jesus. Of all people, when we know the full of the story and that he became a worm, not a man for us, treated as a subhuman, we have no excuse for coming to Jesus in any other posture than that of humility. The woman not only comes in humility, though, she also comes recognizing, I, I, I can do something about my life. I'm not a you know, hopeless, helpless victim here. I can do something. My fate is in my hands, and I, it's, not, it's not in mine alone, but I know where I can take my problems. I'm going to take them to Jesus. And even if the door seems to be closed because of his silence or because the others are saying, turn her away, or because I'm misunderstanding Jesus, or because he said, I'm just going to give you the crumbs. I'm just going to keep knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. I know where I can take this. And that brings us to the third thing that's true in this woman's life, and that is she has a reverence for Jesus because she knows that even the breadcrumbs are enough for her. There's more than enough power, and there's more than enough love in Jesus to do exactly what she needs done in her life. I don't know if she knew this or not, but the miracle that precedes the one in her life is the miracle where Jesus takes the two fish and the five loaves and he feeds the 5,000, not including the women and the children. And then there's 12 basketfuls left over. Right after this miracle, there's the feeding of 4,000, not including women and children. And then there's the seven basketfuls left over. This woman has reverence for Christ He doesn't have to give me much because there's enough power in his little pinky. There's enough power in the leftovers for me to be fully fed. When you've determined in your mind, here's what I'm going to bring to this event. I'm going to bring my humility. And I'm not going to bring a victim status. I'm going to to come in here knowing that I'm taking this to the right person. I'm going to petition him and I'm going to pray. I'm going to work this thing out. And when you have a reverence for Christ that he can do a miracle in your life, guess what? You will come away with a miracle let's bow for a word of prayer father it's impossible to encounter you through your word and through the revelation of your son without in some respect or another being implicitly challenged and your word challenges us once again lord increase our faith that we would be the resilient people that you would have us to be Lord, we do ask that that we would not take offense at you. As we've seen this morning, it is so true that blessed are those who do not take offense. Truth drives away lies. The light drives away darkness. Some things do, in fact, need offending in us that we would know healing. And so, Father, help us to be like this this woman that Jesus encounters, that we would be humble that we would be persistent in prayer, that we would be filled with, with faith that, that trusts you for a miracle, and that we would not be disappointed. Lord, we are a countercultural people because of the gospel. The gospel is deeply offensive. It confronts us in our sin. It tells us of our extreme need. It communicates there is nothing that we can do or contribute to our own salvation, that even our righteousness before you is as filthy rags. 
there's something offensive about the gospel, and yet at the same time we recognize that we can stand the offense. Why? Because we are already wholly, completely accepted by Christ, that he is actually always only in our corner, and that the good work that he's doing in the midst of the truth and the confrontation and the wrestling is making us more and more like him. So grant us the strength necessary so as to embrace you as you take us where you would have us to be. And may we model that kind of strength in the way that we deal with other people. And the way we allow other people to speak truth to us. We ask all of this in Jesus Christ's blessed holy name. Amen.